From CPRI and the CPRI Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today, we look at school funding and how a recession and the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic could impact districts, schools, and students in the coming months. I see that this generation of students is going to suffer something on the order of 3 to 6% lost wages over their entire life career. And it's going to be worse for disadvantaged kids. We welcome Eric Hanushek, Stanford University researcher and an internationally recognized leader in the economic analysis of education issues. He joins CPRI Executive Director Jonathan Sapovitz to discuss the potential economic and workforce impacts of the pandemic. I think that you will see some teachers, particularly the older teachers, just saying, well, maybe it's time for me to hang up the teaching book and move on. And some recommendations for states, districts, and school leaders hoping to rebound from one of the greatest educational challenges in living memory. If by some miracle, all the schools opened in September at the same level they were at in February, we would still have this learning loss that on average is hitting all of these students. The only way we're going to protect the students that were in school and sent away is by making the schools better than they were. That's right now on Research Minutes. Hello, and welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Jonathan Sapovitz, the Executive Director of the Consortium for Policy Research and Education at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education. Today, I have the real pleasure of speaking with Eric Hanushek, the Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University, and an internationally recognized leader in economic analysis of education issues. Thanks so much for joining us, Rick. It's so nice for you to have me at this time. We're talking now in late June on the doorstep of what is sure to be one of the most challenging years in American education history. States and districts are currently at work with plans to reopen in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic and rightfully prioritizing the health of students, employees, and communities. At the same time, COVID has dealt a severe blow to the American economy. And we are now beginning to see the evidence of that in the form of proposed and revised budgets released by states across the U.S. From what you've seen and in your experience as a researcher, how do you think the economic downturn is going to impact school funding for the 2020-2021 school year? Well, I think it's going to have two impacts on funding. One is that funding is going to be less in most uh, instances, and thus maybe the federal government puts a lot more money into it, but probably funding goes down. But secondly, funding is distorted because people will be trying to use money in different ways, given the chaos that we have with the pandemic. Do you have any sense of how dramatic the downturn might be? Um, It's a little bit hard to get at that. Um, I look at this from being a California resident, where in February, schools were just ready to move into all kinds of new things because the state budget was 
just plush. And uh, everybody was ready to increase school funding dramatically. And now, I don't know, maybe 10% uh, lower. Um, who knows exactly how much. Uh, it's going to be a late decision on how much the budget will be shrunk, and it might be a moving target over time. Hmm. And when you talk about distortions, what kind of distortions um, are you thinking about? Well, as I talk to people in the schools today, the big thing is one of almost logistics. How do we make sure our schools are open? How do we make sure that everybody has some sort of technological hookup? How do we provide everybody with a laptop? And how do we provide new equipment for uh, dispersed education? And so we're going to be putting lots of funding into uh, converting spaces to have half the number of kids in them. We're going to be having to make sure that we figure out how to hand out free and reduced price lunches to, to a dispersed population and all kinds of things that are going to actually take resources and they're going to take resources away from what we would traditionally think of as the core budgets of schools. In the U.S., as we know, not all schools are funded the same way. Some districts have a higher reliance on state funding and some are more dependent on local funding. So in our current climate, do you see any of um, any districts more or less likely to weather the storm of the recession in terms of how they receive funding? I think if you look across the states, you're going to see everything. <laughs> you're going to see some districts uh, in some states that are doing well and others that aren't. Um, you're going to find some places where local funding ticks up and to try to replace lost state funding. You're going to see other places where there are specific line items for individual school districts from the state. I think you're going to see everything. Um, and I wouldn't uh, be able to generalize at this point. So unfortunately, um, this is not the first recession that we've experienced um, in this century. And as, as we know, in 2008, there was um, a big economic downturn. Are there any lessons that we can learn from how schools adjusted and responded to that, um, that recession that might give us a little bit more intelligence on what we might expect to see next fall? I think there are some things that we can take away from the 2008 recession, but there's a lot still that's going to be different. The things that we can take away is that uh, almost every state reduced its real spending per pupil after 2008, which is an amazing thing because uh, for the previous century, we never had a reduction in real spending per pupil any place, or in nominal spendings, we had reductions. The other half of this is a surprising resilience of school districts to the uh, lower budgets after the 2008 recession. The school districts, as best you can tell by looking at the outcomes to students, seem to uh, hang in there pretty well, even with the lower funding. Now, I 
think that, the, again, that the upcoming period is going to be quite a bit different because, among other things, we're asking schools to do things that they hadn't done before. And it's somewhat ironic because if you look at schools, they are probably better prepared for emergencies than almost any other part of government, except maybe the Defense Department. Uh, they were ready for uh, shooters coming into the schools, for earthquakes, for fires, and so forth, but they never, ever thought about pandemics. And even though they're well prepared for those known problems that they saw, school districts aren't that good at dancing into new things. And they're a little bit sluggish uh, when it comes to that. And we're going to face that where school districts right now are going are just turning themselves inside and out, figuring out how do we open the doors in September. Are there particular categories within school funding? Um, you know, I'm thinking about special ed or professional development, perhaps for teachers, or are there particular um, lines of, of spending that will be particularly hit by the contraction of school budgets? I suspect so. I mean, I think that like special ed will be covered in some ways. I think the ones you mentioned, professional development might go down. Uh, but I, I don't think looking at categories is the way to do this. Um, you know, what we're going to see in a large number of school districts is that teachers are asked to do things that they weren't prepared to do or hadn't been doing before. So we're going to ask teachers to do a lot of distance education and a lot of asynchronous presentations and, and some synchronous. And what we're going to see is something that we've seen a lot before. That is, some teachers are much better at doing these internet presentations and dispersed education kinds of things than others. But that's just what we've seen before. Some teachers are better at in-class presentations than others. What I think the way we get out of this, and I might be leading uh, the discussion faster than you had anticipated of where we go, but if we take this time to, in fact, try to pay attention to who does which job well and make our school decisions based upon allocating people to the things that they do well, we could actually come out in a better position than we were in. It's certainly true that these kind of crises lead to different kinds of innovations. And indeed, with with online education and distance learning, um, we might start to see some new developments in that area. Although I would suspect that districts that have less technology infrastructure and students who have you know less access to technology. So easily this could exacerbate um, inequalities. How do, you, how do you see inequality being exacerbated by the current circumstance? Well, there's no doubt in my mind that one of the major impacts will be to harm disadvantaged kids that don't have the support and haven't had the support for the last four months at home and that aren't getting uh, education and they're behind 
And then there's some kids that are probably ahead from working on their own and pushing forward. The one point I would make as an economist is that when I look at the last closure of schools that happened everywhere over the last four months, I see that this generation of students is going to suffer something on the order of three to six percent lost wages over their entire life career. And it's going to be worse for disadvantaged kids. They're going to suffer a bigger loss. So when I look at the staffing of schools and what we're doing, I see that we, we want to make the uh, schools back to something like what we had before. We want to try to do as best we can to get to this previous levels. Well, that's not enough because that will not help this generation of students. If by some miracle, all the schools opened in September at the same level they were at in February, we would still have this learning loss that on average is hitting all of these students. The only way we're going to protect the students that were in school and sent away is by making the schools better than they were. Um, and that really comes in doubly in the case of disadvantaged kids, that to bring them back up to where they would have been is going to take a significantly better amount of education than they were getting in February. And so that that's, that's where I'm saying that we have to think about how we make sure that our disadvantaged kids, the ones that were most harmed by this, get a better education. This is a really interesting um, issue because one way to look at this is, is that students experienced a loss of five months or six months of, of this academic year. And of course, that's assuming that things go back as they were in the fall, which is highly specious. But across the education lifespan of a student, that six months is a relatively small portion of, of that entire educational experience. So, so two questions follow from that. One is, how do you put that six months into perspective across the 12 years of schooling or 16 years of schooling? And two is, will this impact students at different ages differently, you know, young learners versus high school students? Well, let me, uh, the latter question is kind of difficult to answer. We don't have enough information about what would happen at different ages and different positions. But what I think is going to happen is that in September, we're going to open up our schools and the teacher is going to walk in and see a much larger variation in preparation of the students in every class. Um, we're going to expand the variations that are coming in. And I think one of the aspects of that is that we have to stop thinking that the number of years that somebody has sat in their seat is a good indicator of where they're at and what kind of education we should give them. So this is the second half of what I see as the necessity going forward if we're going to save this cohort, this generation, 
and that is that we're going to have to think a lot more about meeting the kid where he is, the student, and their ability and building on that, and a lot more competence-based education than we had before. Now, what I find interesting is that there is relatively little discussion of any of these things, even though these are two issues. One is the quality of the teacher that each kid gets, and secondly, whether we pay attention to the ability of the student. These are two issues that we've known about forever that existed in good old-fashioned February schools, but now I think we might be pushed to have to actually deal with them and to try to make decisions that are hinged on recognizing uh, these two facets of schools. So, uh, unfortunately, um, Tufts decisions are going to be facing the uh, school administrators in the weeks and months ahead. So, from your experience, what kinds of recommendations would you have for states and district and even school administrators and leaders as they face the prospect of reduced funding this year? Well, reduced funding means that you have to cut back someplace. Um, my answer is never a popular one, but uh, there's obviously going to be some requirement to reduce the number of people in the schools because 85% of school budgets go toward people. Now, it, it's absolutely the case that schools could come out ahead if they choose who they release, if they release people that aren't contributing very much to the education of kids and keep the ones that are really contributing, uh, the uh, average kid could come out way ahead. But that's not what would happen according to California law that says um, uses a LIFO system if we have reductions in force, last in, first out. And so if we just imagine reducing the number of teachers by um, dismissing all the young teachers, then we're not going to be any better off, maybe worse off, as opposed to if you had a ability in, ineffectiveness out policy, you could come out ahead. Do you suspect that some districts might offer early retirement packages to more senior teachers? Well, I don't think it's just a matter of how old somebody is, um, and that's the, the, been the problem. I think that districts will try to do things like that, but the average teacher near the retirement cutoff is an average teacher. No better, no worse. So if you just reduce the number of those, the uh, average that you're left with in terms of effectiveness and quality of the teachers is the same. So I could see districts, given the pressures that they face, trying to alter that situation. So you offer early retirement systems, uh, early retirement to those who aren't very effective in the classroom or who aren't very effective at uh, distance learning and try to keep those that are effective. So thinking about it from a retirement standpoint, um, you would offer 
bonus contracts to teachers. You would probably want to do it without having it affect their retirement pay. You would offer them a bonus that wasn't eligible for retirement calculations um, and try to keep the effective teachers around. Do you see any indication that health considerations are going to cause a decline in the teaching force? I think so. Um, If I had to predict, I would say that there are a number of teachers and students who don't want to subject themselves to the increased risk of being uh, around people that might be disease carriers, (laughs) virus carriers. Um, And so I think that you will see some teachers, particularly the older teachers, just saying, well, maybe it's time to for me to hang up the teaching book and move on. And so um, I think that that is going to actually put other pressures on the school districts um, because school districts have not been hiring a lot of people with all the uncertainty. And so if you have a lot of basically unannounced retirements, uh, school districts are going to be running around just trying to find bodies for many of their things. And so that's going to be an added pressure. Hmm. But there's a countervailing force of high uh, unemployment rates, which probably suggests that there'll be more adults interested in entering teaching. Well, there there might be, but um, we have all these rules that determine which adults can enter. And presumably, uh, the ones that are going to enter most frequently are young teachers who were in good faith going to schools of education all last year, and then all of a sudden, the world changes. And so you're going to have a, a stock of those people. You're probably going to be rushed and pushed to just hire the first applicants in a lot of of large school districts. If I looked at Philadelphia School District, I would think that they could get into a real hiring jam uh, when they find out exactly which teachers are going to be available and for what purposes and how many other teachers do we need and so forth. It's going to be a complex situation in the fall. Um, so what are some indicators that you would look at that would give a sense of which way both funding and employment numbers are going to look? Well, I think that employment numbers are actually going to start coming back, um, and, and they'll come back in the fall, just normal unemployment rates, which is, has been skewed in, in lots of ways by the way we've closed all the people-oriented businesses. The funding matters are largely going to be ones of what state legislatures do and how they react. And it's going to take leadership in governments uh, and in, in the governor's office and the executive branches across the states. And the governor's offices aren't any better prepared for these decisions than the schools were. So it's going to be an interesting time. So keep an eye on the state legislatures and see what they're doing for funding. Oh, absolutely. I think that that's going to be key um, because the schools 
basically are going to have a hard time spending money they don't have. It's going to depend upon uh, the flows of funds coming in. We know that much of the local money is going to be a bit erratic, I guess, um, where we allow people to defer uh, payments on their mortgages and probably defer payments on their uh, property taxes, etc., even though that might not be completely legal, we're going to see a bit of that. And uh, that's going to add to a bit of more instability. We're certainly heading into an uncertain time in the fall. Eric Hanushek, once again, is the Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. And you can read more about his work by visiting hanushek.stanford.edu. Eric, thanks so much for speaking to us on Research Minutes today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the Seabreen Knowledge Hub. For more episodes or to subscribe, you can find us at researchminutes.org. To share thoughts on today's episode or to suggest a future topic, follow us on Twitter at cprehub. That's C-P-R-E-H-U-B. 